Well, let's continue now in our study of the human trilemma. The human trilemma, the inability, uh, seeming inability to form and maintain loving, healthy relationships. And why that is so? What is the context behind that? Why is it so difficult to form and maintain loving, healthy adult relationships? Something we long for or something we're hardwired for. And it's a thing, seemingly, that we have the least ability to do. Now, I realize that that is a pretty blanket statement. And some of you may object and protest and say, no, I have I have several loving, healthy relationships and everything's wonderful. And, and if that's the case, I am just delighted for you. I can only say the amen and the amen. I can also say that it is very um, uncommon. Uh, I realize that as a as a counselor, I see a lot of people who are on the wrong end of that story, and um, and perhaps uh, they are uh, uh, appear to be in the minority. But I have discovered in my many years of doing this work that uh, the people who come to counseling are not the few. Uh, in society. They are the courageous of society. In other words, the people who need counseling, who who sense, I need counseling, and they go to seek out answers, are not because they are somehow terminally unique or uniquely flawed and stand apart from the rest of society. I've always seen now that they are people who have exercised a great deal of courage and in fact have stepped away from society. So they may be the few, but they are the few who are exercising the courage, the God-given courage, to take some good hard looks at themselves and do some examination as to why it is that they're having such a difficult time forming and maintaining healthy, loving relationships. It really is a problem, and it has its roots in the uh, fall. It has us, our roots in Genesis 3. So the ability to form and maintain loving, healthy relationships is one of the immediate effects of the garden fall. When uh, Adam listened to the voice of his wife, and who had listened and turned to the voice of the serpent, and they trespassed, they violated God's boundary, as to where they could and what they couldn't participate in, partake in, as far as the, the garden um, fruit, and um, and thus bought the lie that they could be like God on their own terms. They could decide for themselves what was good and what was evil, and thus be like God in their minds. That was the devil's promise. The devil never encourages you to, by the way, deny God or reject God or the concept of God. Atheists are are double-deceived. No, the devil encourages you to adopt a different view of God. And in this case, what the devil tempted Adam and Eve with was the view that they could be equal with God. It's almost as if the devil said, you know, let God be God. Great. Give him his corner of the universe. You take yours. You insist that you have your rights too. God can have his way and you can have your way. You 
God can have his opinion, and you can have your opinion too. So you, you want to be a peer, one of God's peers, which you want to be. And of course, they bought that. The fall occurred. The very serious effect that it had, not just in creating guilt and shame where once there was none, the effect that it had is it completely changed human nature. It was a permanent effect. It wasn't Adam then just having a bad afternoon. It wasn't Adam out on a bender and so he could come back and sober up and get back on track. No, something has shifted in his mind, in his heart. As with Eve. So that the only response that they had to God at that point was to hide. That that pinnacle of creation, humanity, Adam, the image of God in his perfection, bought the lie that he could relate to God on his own terms as a peer, as a co-equal in the universe. Or that God would somehow be subject to him. (laughs) You hear philosophers say that all the time, don't you? Philosophers all the time are saying, well, you know, God is subject to your free will. You know, God will never violate your free will. There's a half-truth there, isn't there? And so you give yourself over to everything that will violate your free will and put you into bondage. And that's what sin does. Sin takes us into bondage. It takes us into slavery. It's, it's an awful price to pay for the promise of freedom from God. So, Adam is now hiding in the garden. His relationship, his most important relationship in the universe, the most important relationship, the relationship for which he was created, has been violated. Adam wasn't created for Eve. Eve was created for Adam. The animals, all of creation, wasn't created um, uh, for anything but for Adam. Adam wasn't created for creation. Adam was the pinnacle. And Eve now alongside him. Taken from his side, the two of them stood together as the perfect image of God. And now they're hiding from God. That relationship, see? This is what I'm saying in this series. The trilemma. The issue... By the time we get to the point where we are suffering in our relationships, it's because we have some mental defects that have developed. And those mental defects are rooted in our spiritual condition. And you just don't hear a lot being talked about that. Now, you'll hear things about spirituality within 12-step groups and even within some therapeutic circles. You'll hear that people are commended for being spiritual. But it's a very abstract, undefined spirituality that does not involve relationship. It involves, quote, connection, end quote, with whatever. 
But biblical spirituality is about relationship. And the ability, and let me say it again, the ability to form and maintain loving, healthy relationships was the first immediate effect of the fall. The we, we lost our ability to do that. And that was seen, of course, in, in how God addressed Adam. The first thing, the first three words that God spoke to Adam after the fall were these. Where are you? Genesis 3.9 Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? I love the old authorized version. Where art thou? Where art thou? Now, God knew where Adam was, right? I mean, <laughs> this is a relational statement. God was very aware where Adam was geographically. Adam thought he could hide. Adam was attempting to hide, and that's what God's addressing. Where art thou? What's going on? What's happening, Adam? Speak to me. Where art thou? Have you ever been in a room with a person with whom you're visiting, or maybe a family member at home in the evening, and you're carrying on a conversation, and you look up and you look over, and you see that that person isn't even listening to you? They're staring off into the distance, or they're distracted with something. And your immediate response is to say, where are you right now? What's happening with you right now? I, 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 did you hear a word that I was saying? <laughs> it's that kind of a breakdown, see? It's a breakdown in communication. It's a breakdown in presence. That's the first thing that happened in the garden, was a breakdown of presence. Where, the, where God and Adam were in perfect fellowship, in perfect presence with each other. Adam was present to, the, to God and to his creator, and God was present to his creation, to Adam. There was perfect presence. And now we hear these tragic words, Where art thou? And then it just goes downhill from there. In verse 10, Adam says, So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So now there's fear. So far, God has not given him anything to be afraid of. He did warn him, however, that if you do this, you will die. But it wasn't to be afraid of God. It was to be afraid of the action. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? God said to Adam. Have you eaten from the tree of which I command you that you should not eat? Talk to me, Adam. In other words, God knew what had happened. Talk to me, though, Adam. Tell me, have you done this? Confess to me. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. In other words, I paid more attention to the serpent than I did you. I believed the serpent, not you. That's the problem with humanity. We believe the lie. We're more accustomed to the lie now. We are conditioned to believe the lie. We even like the lie. Something about the lie that's attractive to us in our fallen state. So, Eve said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. She knew what had happened. But she had done it willingly. Do you think that people like to be deceived? Consider the, the masses of people who follow superstars, rock stars, politicians, the dear leader. And somebody from a distance can look and say, how do these people believe this stuff? That's not a partisan statement, by the way. That's just throughout human history. How do these people believe this stuff? How did millions of Germans gather in Nuremberg and salute Hitler? With pride and even delight and joy. You've seen some of those old films of the Nuremberg rallies where the people were just thrilled to see the Fuhrer. Joy, delight was in their faces. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, all and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan's uh, been put on notice. God's saying, You may have pulled this off, but I'll remedy it. I will produce a remedy. You may have pulled this one off, Satan, but you didn't pull anything by me. I will produce a remedy. I will produce in humanity, by the way, one who will crush your head. One who will bruise your head. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. There's, I don't know of any woman who's ever brought forth a child except with pain. Thank God for the modern medicine and that allows a woman to do it relatively pain-free these days. But it's still a stressful and even painful situation. It's an indication. Every time a child is born, it's a witness to this text. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, let's take a moment and just consider what we're hearing here. 
your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This isn't sexual desire. This isn't even uh, heartfelt desire. This is this is a Hebrew word that refers to control. You will attempt to des- control your husband and he will rule over you. He will respond by dominating you. In other words, you're going to have pain in childbirth and you're going to have conflict in your relationship with your husband. Let me show you where this word shows up again. It shows that this word desire shows up with Cain in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. You know the story, perhaps. Two brothers, Abel and Cain, are going to make offerings. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Now listen closely. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. It's almost exact same language between Adam and Eve. God is telling Cain, and if you do not do well, sin lies crouching at the door, if you will. And its desire is for you, to control you. Sin is longing, Cain is longing to partner with you and control you. That's really what it means. It's to partner with you, to to take overtake you, to control your life. But you should rule over it, God graciously tells Cain. You must be aware of sin's desire to control you and make you a servant to it. You must, you must rule over it. There's a new entity here, it's Cain. You did what you did. And you're about to do what you're going to do. And he didn't rule over it, did he? Because in the next verse, he kills his brother. Now Cain talked with his Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? See how this is going now? It's all going downhill fast. Starts out with Adam, Where are you? Now he's asking Abel, Where's Abel, your brother? I mean, Cain, Where's Abel, your brother? And what was Cain's response? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So the whole family system just started breaking down here immediately. Sin entered into humanity. It created a significant permanent change, not only in, 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 uh, in experience, but in nature. So that by chapter 6, 
Verse 5, we read, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen, it doesn't take a a lot to realize that that what I that's that which I just read there. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not a recipe for loving healthy relationships, folks. That is not a recipe for loving healthy relationships. How can a sinner who's turned in on himself or herself who insists on being the center of the universe, who only wants what they want when they want it, whenever they want it, from whomever they want it, and they don't care who cares about it, who they don't care what anybody thinks about it, including God, particularly God, ever expect that they're going to be able to form loving, healthy relationships. It isn't going to happen. In fact, let me just tell you that whenever an unbeliever is able to form and maintain any kind of decent relationships in his life, it's a, it's a work of common grace. Because that isn't the natural state. And it may just be an appearance of good relationships. So last time I read to you, and I'm going to close with this, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 where we begin to bring this forward now into the New Testament, where we realize man's condition is that of dead in, in trespasses and sins. And next time we're together, we'll talk more about verses 4 through the end of verse 10, where we learn that there are two different kinds of works. There are works that are generated, self-generated, with an anticipation of earning merit before God. And there are works that are generated by the Spirit in the believer that are works of love. Let me say that again. The next time we're together, we will look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, and we'll examine the two different kinds of works works that are done with religious rituals and law-keeping and other acts of piety in hopes of earning merit before God, which are something that doesn't apply in the gospel, right? Important to understand. It's, it's a fool's errand. But at the same time, verse 10, we'll learn that we are his workmanship, that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we'll discover that those are works of love. We have been redeemed, beloved, from the garden fall. We have been redeemed from without of that humanity described in Genesis 6. We have been redeemed, we have been given a new heart, a new nature, and the result of that, the consequence, if you will, of that, 
is that we do works of love. We don't have a dead faith. That's why later on in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, Paul makes application both in the family and so on. The gospel produces loving, healthy relationships. That's one of the foundational promises of the gospel. Not only are we reconciled with God, we are reconciled with ourselves, and we're reconciled with others. And we can now actually not only have the desire, but the ability by nature, by our new nature, which is one of the promises of the new covenant, isn't it? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, promises a new nature. God will remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He'll place his spirit within us so that we keep his laws and his ordinances. The supreme aspect of that is love. So we'll look at works of love next time we're together. May the Lord strengthen you and keep you. I pray that you meditate on these things and hold to the promise that in Jesus Christ, we not only have the promise of heaven before us, we have the promise of redemption today. And there's no place where that redemption shows up more um, powerfully than in our redeemed ability to form and maintain loving, healthy relationships. And we can model those as we go out into the world. It's one, one of the greatest testimonies to the power of the gospel is how Christians love one another. Until next time, may the Lord grant you peace, grace, and his presence throughout every day, every moment of every day. Amen.